Our scripture this morning is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Josh Sainer. I'm one of the elders here at GCF. Happy New Year's Eve. It's hard to believe another year is in the books. 2024 starts tomorrow. Well, last week we were in the book of Galatians for a Christmas Eve sermon. Today we make our way back to John. And John chapter 18 starts what has been known throughout church history as the Passion of Christ. Passion is a Latin word for suffering. It has a bit of a different meaning today. But through much of time, the passion of Christ has described that short but intense period of suffering before Jesus' death. And here in our passage today, we start that um, section of Scripture with his betrayal and his arrest. But before we dive in, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus and that he chose, as we sang this morning, a criminal's death. We thank you that you sought fit in your wisdom for him to drink the Father's cup in our place. And so we are thankful. This morning I pray, Lord, that your glory would be highlighted in John. I pray that you would protect my words. I pray, Father, that you would give me boldness as we explore the depths of the riches in John chapter 18. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it is arguable that the two most notorious betrayals in human history occurred within only 75 years of each other. Marcus Junius Brutus lived just a few decades before the birth of Jesus. And Brutus was a well-known Roman politician and orator. And in February of 44 BC, he set out to betray his friend and leader, Julius Caesar. Now just a few years prior, Rome was in a civil war. And Brutus found himself allied with the great Roman general, Pompey. But sensing Pompey's defeat, he switched allegiances and joined Caesar. And Caesar graciously welcomed him into his inner circle and appointed him governor of Gaul, which would be most of modern-day France. Then in 45 BC, he appointed him to the position of Roman magistrate. 
Brutus valued democracy. He desired to see Rome remain a republic. However, Caesar was inching ever closer to absolute power over the Roman Republic. Then in February of 44 BC, Julius Caesar assumed the title Dictator Perpetuo, Dictator for Life. So in February of that same month, Brutus, along with other Roman senators, decided to conspire to assassinate Julius Caesar. Various plans were discussed. One was to ambush him on the very public street called the Via Sacra. It's the sacred street that enters the heart of Rome. Another was to get him at the gladiatorial games. But these and other plans they came up with had too many risks for failure. So they settled on a very unsuspecting place. It was the temporary uh, meeting house for the Senate. The Roman Forum was under construction, so they decided on the 15th of March would be when they would assassinate Caesar. So as the meeting began, Julius Caesar entered. Brutus, followed by 60 senators, stabbed Julius Caesar 23 times until he died. And the Greek philosopher and historian recorded, Plutarch stated, as they were stabbing him, Caesar initially fought back until he saw Brutus's participation, at which point he yielded and stated his final dying words. Kai su technon, you too, child? Well, Caesar's assassination had the opposite effect. The Roman mob was not happy with his death, so Brutus and his conspirators fled Rome. And Rome once again was in another civil war. And two years later, Brutus was defeated in Greece by the Roman armies of Mark Antony and Octavian. And after his defeat, Brutus committed suicide. Then within 15 years, Rome moved from a republic to an empire. And Octavian, which was Caesar's adopted son, his grandnephew, assumed the title of Caesar Augustus. Rome became an empire and Augustus served as the first Roman emperor, forever changing the course of human history. And in less than 60 years, another infamous betrayal took place. This betrayal also ensued by a close friend who would later commit suicide. This betrayal also resulted in the death of a king that would forever change the course of human history. And so we arrive today at our passage in John 18, the scene that depicts the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Now, this scene does provoke some questions. If Jesus was born to be a king, and he was the son of God, yet he was caught off guard and captured, murdered, killed, is he truly a savior that was in control? Which leads us to the question, who was in control at his arrest? Was it the authorities? Was it the betrayer Judas? Was it Satan working behind the scenes? Was Jesus not powerful enough to avoid being captured and arrested? Why didn't he fight back like Caesar fought back? And ultimately, the question we can ask is, can we trust, trust him as Savior when he was captured and killed when life becomes very difficult for us. Well, yes, we can trust Jesus 
because he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and he was in control even at his arrest. And that is the main idea here in the passage today, that Jesus was sovereign over his arrest. Jesus was fully in control. It was his hour, his hour of suffering and salvation. God sovereignly used the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities and a betraying a betraying friend to execute his eternal plan. So to help us understand this idea that Jesus was sovereign over his arrest, we're gonna consider three main points. First, Jesus was sovereign over the place of his arrest. Jesus was sovereign over the people at his arrest. And third, he was sovereign over the purpose of his arrest. The people, or the place, the people, and the purpose. So first, Jesus was sovereign over the place of his arrest. What type of place was it? It was a well-known place. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. John 18, 1 states, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. John gives us some geographical information about the place, but the key here is in verse 2 where he states that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there. We already know from John in previous chapters that Jesus knew his death was imminent. Just hours before at the Last Supper, Jesus told Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. Now, typically when a person is trying to hide, they do not go to the first place their pursuer would immediately know. I think back to when I was a kid. I grew up in a very urban neighborhood just six miles north of Detroit. 100 feet across the street from me was a fire station. My friends and I, we loved to play hide-and-seek. And 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 hide-and-seek always ended in a game of tag. Now, generally, we hung out at the fire station on the steps. There was a stairway that led up about 10 feet to the entryway, and that was our place of hangout. Now, when we would play hide-and-seek, we generally enjoyed tag better. So often, what we would do is we would hide at the top of the stairs because we all knew that was the place we hung out. So as our friends would make the way up the stair, we could get on the ledge and hang off so we could drop down and escape before they would make it up. Now, similarly... Jesus, he was not caught off guard because this was a well-known place of his choosing. What else do we learn about the place of his arrest? Well, we learn that it was a garden. Look with me again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. From the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know the garden's name was Gethsemane, probably a private landowner's olive farm or olive press. But the fact that Jesus chose a garden for his arrest, it brings scripture to life and highlights his sovereignty even more. Why so? Well, it's because of the biblical garden motif or garden theme that runs from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis to the very last book, Revelation. 
Most of us probably know, in the beginning, God created the first man, Adam, in a garden. And it was in that garden where Satan disguises the serpent, tempted Adam and Eve, and Adam fell into sin. Satan thought he had foiled God's plan, corrupted God's uh, race, humans that are made in the image of God. But it was also in that same garden that the Lord gave the first recorded prophecy to the serpent. Paraphrasing, he told him, one day, a descendant from this couple will be born, the seed of the woman. And though you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And that descendant would be the Messiah, a savior not of political and earthly kingdoms, but a savior from our sin and a savior from death. And this man would complete the work the first man failed to do. That is to live a life in perfect obedience to God. So it's not by accident that Jesus chose a garden for the place of his arrest. In the next chapter, we're going to see in John chapter 19, Jesus was buried in a garden. See, it was in a garden where the first man, Adam, plunged humanity into sin and death. But it was also in a garden where the last Adam, or the second Adam, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, rescued humanity from the bondage of sin and death into life eternal. Then at the end of the book of the Bible, the last book, Revelation, John, also the same author, listen to how he describes the garden city. Listen, the same elements that are in the Garden of Eden. Listen as we read Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. See, the first Adam, he was driven from the face of God in a garden. But the last Adam brings all of his face to face with God, now and in the life to come. What great hope that gives us as Christians that one day in a recreated earth, we will dwell and reign with God Almighty because Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was arrested in the place of his choosing a garden. Jesus was sovereign over his place of arrest. What other details of Jesus' arrest was he sovereign over? That brings us to our second point. The second point, Jesus was sovereign over the people of his arrest. Who were the people at his arrest? First, there were the authorities. Look with me at verses 3 through 8. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and all the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So when Judas left the upper room at the Last Supper, he went and procured a band of soldiers. Now in the Greek, a band, it literally means a cohort, which was a Roman cohort. It would consist of anywhere from 400 to 600 soldiers. It's about a tenth of a legion. And the Roman soldiers would have been stationed nearby in Jerusalem. It was the Passover. Now, whether this band or cohort of soldiers truly included up to 600, we don't know. But it was largely, excuse me, it was likely a very large number. Also coming with this group of authorities were uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers. These would have likely been the temple guards. And together as one, it's important to see, both the Roman authorities, the, the Gentiles, and the Jewish authorities, together they came as one with Judas, the betrayer, and Satan behind the scenes. Together as one they came to arrest the Messiah, Jesus. And when they arrived, they asked him, or Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they responded, Jesus of Nazareth. And then something interesting happens. Jesus responds in a bold manner, I am he. And John lets us know something very interesting that happens. When he states, I am he, the authorities drew back and they fell to the ground. For a moment before Jesus' arrest and suffering, we get a glimpse of his sovereignty as king, as the authorities fall down. John does not leave this detail out. It's as if we get a glimpse of the power that proceeds forth when Jesus states who he is. I am he, and the authorities are laid bare in reverence at his feet. Listen, if it were not his hour of suffering, he would not have been arrested. Many other times, Jesus stood before threatening crowds and the authorities, but we read of things like he passed through the crowd when they were going to throw him off the cliff or stone him, but it was his hour. Yet, we see that Jesus is sovereign over the authorities. Well, the stunned group that's laying on the ground is unsure of what has actually happened. So Jesus almost comedically has to ask them again, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answers in what almost could be read as an authoritative tone. I told you that I am he. So first, there were the authorities Jesus was sovereign over at his arrest. Second, there was Judas the betrayer. Look with me at verse 5b. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. We already know from John chapter 13 that Jesus knew Judas would betray him. Jesus chose Judas as one of his disciples because Jesus is all-knowing. It was prophesied throughout the Old Testament that one day the Messiah would be betrayed, 
Psalm 41 and Zechariah 11 mention this. Now here in John's narrative, he lets the reader feel the pain or the sting of betrayal. First, in verse 3, we know it's Judas who goes out to procure the band of soldiers. Then in verse 5, it's Judas who John states is standing with the arresting authorities. Think for a moment. For three close, intimate years, Judas lived, he ate, he had life with Jesus and the disciples. Whenever they were together, they were always standing against the opposing crowd. Now here, in the garden at his arrest, John tells us, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Betrayal, it's painful. It's painful because it's a rejection. Betrayal is painful because it leaves the victim feeling hated, not loved. Betrayal severs trust in a relationship. Listen to King David. King David was the 14th generational great-grandfather of Jesus. He is a type of Christ. Listen to David describe the pain of betrayal by his friend and counselor, Ahithophel, when his son also betrayed him. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. Now, it is not an enemy who insults me. Otherwise, I could bear it. It is not a foe who rises up against me. Otherwise, I could hide from him. But it is you. Like Caesar's words, you too, child. But it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion, and good friend. We used to have close fellowship. We walked with the crowd into the house of God. Well, maybe you this morning are someone that has experienced betrayal and you know the pain of what it feels like to be betrayed by a close friend, a spouse, a family member, or a friend. The pain and hurt you feel is overwhelming. You ask, why? But it's you. Listen, sin always leads to pain. Betrayal always severs trust in relationship. But thankfully, Jesus can sympathize with your pain because he also knows what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend. And this is the amazing news of the gospel. Jesus as a man, yes, he was the son of God, but he was also the son of man. And because he lived a life, he had real flesh and blood, and he suffered greatly, he can sympathize with your suffering. The prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus as the man of sorrows, a man well acquainted with grief. And because Jesus suffered in far greater ways than most of us, We can come to him to find true comfort and peace when we are in pain. Listen, true and lasting peace, or excuse me, healing is possible. It's possible. Why? Because Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave. And the Bible says now that there is resurrection power available through the spirit of Christ 
that can give life to your mortal body. That means healing for your physical body, but also for your psychological mind and your emotions. So you can pour out your heart to Christ like King David did and find peace in your suffering. There's also supernatural power to forgive, to forgive those that have betrayed you. Listen, vengeance is the Lord's alone. One day he will make all things right. We're called as Christians to forgive. Vengeance is not ours, but the Lord's. Well, what other people were at his arrest? Thirdly, we see the disciples. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. These are some of the sweetest verses in all of the Bible. And there are a lot of verses. Jesus' disciples were with him when he was about to be arrested. And what did he do? He stepped forward to protect them. Verse 4, John tells us, in, Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. He knew all the things that were about to happen to him. All the abuse that he was about to suffer. He was going to be betrayed, arrested, mocked, whipped, beaten, tortured, crucified. And in light of this knowledge, Jesus stepped forward. He went out and he approached the threatening crowd. Don't ever believe the modern-day depiction that Jesus is this kind of passive, effeminate hippie type because he wore sandals and a robe. Pretty sure most people wore that 2,000 years ago. Men, I speak to you. Jesus is the perfect example of biblical masculinity. Listen, Jesus moves towards danger. Jesus is a great shepherd. He is a protector. He is a leader. He is an initiator. In the face of danger, Jesus steps forward and he surrenders himself and requests that his friends be able to be let go. Now the fulfillment of pro the prophecy in verse 9, John says, this, letting the disciples go, was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. This prophecy seems to be one that holds double meaning. Yes, they were let go and freed right then, but we know from church history, most of them suffered death at some point in their life for following Jesus. John just prayed in John 17, or Jesus just prayed in John 17, we heard uh, this sermon a couple weeks back, that none of them be lost. Here's the key. Ultimately, his prayer was so that the disciples would not be lost eternally. Listen to John Calvin's commentary on this chapter. Calvin says, I reply that the evangelist is not just speaking about their bodily life, but rather means that Christ, by sparing them for a time, made provision for their eternal salvation. Consider how, how weak they were. What do we think they would have done if they had been on trial for their life? 
So while Christ did not want them to be tried beyond the strength which he had given them, he rescued them from eternal destruction. And from this we may deduce a general doctrine that even if Christ tests our faith with many temptations, still he will never allow us to come into the ultimate danger without also supplying us with strength to overcome. Amen. Jesus is our shepherd. He will preserve you and I until the end. That means no matter what difficulty you might face, what challenge comes your way, what 2024 has in store for us, Jesus has secured our eternal state because he voluntarily of his own accord was arrested in our place. That means we can trust him. We can trust him today. You can find true peace in Jesus. But what that means, though Jesus is fully trustworthy, we're weak. So we need to come to Jesus daily. We need to come to him and lean on him. We need to talk to him, pray to him. We need to read the word so that our trust in him grows. If you do this, you will find yourself not as anxious but trusting in God's sovereignty. Well, so far we have looked at how Jesus was sovereign over the place of his arrest. We've seen how Jesus is sovereign over the people at his arrest. Our third and final point is to consider how Jesus was sovereign over the purpose of his arrest. The purpose of his arrest. Well, what was his purpose? The purpose of his arrest. It was to drink the Father's cup. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This garden scene, it's the culmination of Jesus' life. It's the climax in the story. It was for this very moment in time that Jesus was born and lived for 33 years to drink the Father's cup. And then in steps Peter, well-meaning Peter. So often throughout the various gospel accounts, we see Peter saying and doing the wrong thing. And here in verse 10, we see that in action. Peter tries to prevent Jesus' arrest by drawing his sword and chopping off the high priest's servants, likely his earlobe. Side note, the New Testament is credible. Why? John names somebody, a witness, Malchus. It is very, very likely at the circulation of the Gospel of John, Malchus was still alive. And we know from the other Gospel accounts, Jesus healed him. People could have easily gone to him and asked, is this true? And we read, there's no account of this ever, you know, being denied. So the Bible is trustworthy. But here again, back to Peter. For Peter, things are spiraling out of control. Things are out of control. Peter's still thinking like he did about a year back in the time with Jesus. Matthew 16, it's when Jesus reveals to the disciples that he will be betrayed, he will be arrested and put to death by the Jewish leaders. 
you remember what Peter said? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen. In Peter's mind, someone needs to take control of the situation himself. But Jesus is fully in control. This is all part of his plan. It is his hour. So like many times in the past, Jesus rebukes Peter and he tells him, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Well, what exactly does that mean, to drink the Father's cup? Well, the cup has Old Testament symbolism, which points to God's wrath poured out upon the wicked. Listen to how Asaph in Psalm 75 illustrates this very well. Verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, Yummy. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Do you know what the dregs are? It's all the nasty sediment that sits at the bottom of a fermented drink. The psalmist and the prophets regularly depict God's wrath as being poured out of a cup upon wicked sinners. See, God is perfect. God is holy. And all those who are under his wrath are sinners. But the problem is most people, especially before they're Christians, don't think of themselves as that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm not a sinner. I haven't killed anybody. But what people fail to understand is it was one disobedient act by the first man, Adam, that plunged all of humanity under God's righteous judgment. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, does a great job of highlighting this point. When you walk into a barnyard filled with animals, you are immediately met with the stench of filth. Do you think for one moment those barnyard animals are aware of their odious smell? Of course not. And before becoming a Christian, we all have the stench of sin. Why? Because we all have betrayed God. So it seems that we have a problem. How are sinful people like you and I going to enter into a relationship with a holy God? Well, we can do so because Jesus, the Messiah, he chose to save us from the wrath of God. How so? He did this by drinking the foaming cup of God's righteous wrath towards sin for you and for I. Listen, this is important. The greatest suffering, the greatest suffering of Jesus was not just the day-long uh, torment that he suffered, which had to be horrendous. The greatest suffering or passion of Christ was that he for six hours took the unrelenting wrath of God as he poured out God's wrath upon Jesus. Maybe that's a new concept for you. Maybe that's a hard concept, concept to understand. But you have to understand that God is holy. God is infinite. So the punishment for the crime, the punishment has to fit the crime. If someone were to come to your house and step on a bug, you'd probably thank them. 
But if someone came to your house and shot your dog, eh, they might have to pay a fine and possibly some jail time. But if someone came to your house and shot your family member, in most states, they would spend a lifetime in prison. How much greater is God than all three things that I listed? God is infinite. God is holy. That's why the Bible describes hell as eternal. Listen, only Jesus could satisfy God's wrath. Only Jesus could because he was both God and man. In his divinity as the son of God, he could absorb an infinite amount of wrath in six hours of time so that you don't have to spend an eternity for your own punishment. But also as a man, he served as our representative, the perfect spotless lamb of God because it was a man that sinned and all of us have sinned. So we deserve the punishment, but instead he served it in our place. So this morning, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you can rejoice and be glad Jesus paid all of the penalty that you and I deserve. There's not one last ounce of punishment that you need to serve. Jesus drank all the foaming wine of God's wrath down to the last dregs for you and I. That means there's no condemnation. There's no guilt left for us to feel, no shame, no fear. Instead, we have the great hope of the future that Jesus will one day come back and we will reign as co-heirs with him for all eternity. If you are in Christ this morning, do you know how God sees you? He sees you as in Christ, the conqueror that was promised back in Genesis 3 in the garden. Well, this morning we have considered the main idea that Jesus was sovereign over his arrest from the moment that he stepped foot into that garden until he was led away bound, Jesus was in full control. We explored this through three points. Jesus was sovereign over the place of his arrest. He was sovereign over the people of his arrest. And he was sovereign over the purpose of his arrest. Let me close with this. I have already addressed among those of us that have experienced betrayal but I want to speak for a moment to those of you that have betrayed others. Some of you here have possibly committed adultery, abandoned a child, broke trust with a family member. Maybe you have been denying Christ through current and present sin in your life that contradicts what it means to be a Christian. Well, there is also hope and forgiveness for you Jesus drank the cup the Father gave him. Jesus bore the shame and guilt that you deserve. That means there is no more shame or guilt that you need to experience in this life. Yes, sometimes crimes committed in this life have an earthly penalty. There's consequences for sin. But the good news for all Christians that have truly repented and put their hope in Jesus is you no longer have to experience the guilt and the weight that comes with your sin. Instead, you can experience 
hope for the future life to come. And if you're not a Christian this morning, but you sense the weight of your sin, I would encourage you today, trust in Jesus. Trust in the one who is fully in control. It's really easy. It's very easy. Repent of your sin, believe in him, and follow Jesus. Repent, believe, and follow him. And you can have the same hope. Amen. Please join me in prayer.